Well, then let's pray uh, before we come around God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you do rule and you reign and you will do so forever. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for those times when we doubt this truth. We pray, Lord, that you would continually remind us that this world is not the end. Lord, that we have greater things uh, that are yet to be. We look forward, Lord, to when you return and that we have the privilege through the gospel of reigning with you. But Lord, we know that you, uh, aren't, your reign isn't just something that's in the future. We know that you are ruling and reigning even now. And we pray, Lord, that as we come around your word, you would rule in our hearts. Lord, that you would uh, change us and uh, show us those areas that we uh, perhaps are not living as people of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort to those uh, that are needing comfort and encouragement to those that need encouragement, that your word would speak into every situation that is in this congregation this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you in this room are into science, or specifically uh, physics. Uh, I always liked physics at school uh, because it was, uh, they taught things that were certain. Physics always has laws, doesn't it? Things that are definitely uh, scientifically, experimentally certain to happen. So a good example of that is that every action has an equal and opposite reaction, which is part of uh, Isaac Newton's three laws of motion that are in physics. There are many others. I'm not going to go through many others. We're not in a physics lesson, but you know what I mean. Uh, There are other ones that are obvious to us, like the laws of gravity and such things. But I was thinking of another law that seems to happen in my life. Uh, This is known as Murphy's Law that states that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. I don't know how many of you find this law in your lives, but with me, it translates something like this. Whenever I'm in a hurry, the traffic lights are always red. Always. Whenever Paula puts the washing out, it always rains. Whenever we wake up at the weekend, we don't need an alarm. I never get that lion. When I sat down to watch a movie or something or to read a book or whatever, the phone always rings, doesn't it? In our house, Paula is always the one when she's having a meal to get that rotten potato or the hair in her food or something like that. In our home, it's always Paula. None of us ever, it never happens to us. Always to Paula. But there is a law uh, that we'll focus on tonight which is also always true. More so even than the laws of physics. And it's in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. This is a law. This is what God says. Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire... We're finding out 
that this law was exactly true for them as well. Tonight we're going to see that justice was deserved. The city of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, they reaped what they had sown. And as we read through chapter 3, we see that there is a sowing and there is a reaping. And we're going to look at those uh, things tonight. First of all, there was the sowing of judgment. The sowing is the reason why Nineveh was destroyed. It's the justification, the reason that God was judging them. And we find four accusations in the first four verses. Four reasons why Nineveh was destroyed. First of all, we see the charge of murder. Look at verse 1. It says in the first uh, line there, Woe to the city of blood. Woe to the city of blood. This again, as in previous chapters, describes the brutality of this Assyrian empire. And in stone carvings discovered by archaeologists, Assyrian soldiers are shown torturing children, blinding warriors, chopping off hands, impaling victims on stakes and beheading their enemies. At times, entire communities would rather commit suicide than face the Assyrians. And at the end of verse 1, we read that it was never without victims. Uh, The New King James uses the phrase, the victim never departs. The victims never escaped when the Assyrians came. And in verses 2 and 3, we see uh, graphic descriptions of the Ninevite brutality. Nahum uses the senses to describe what they would like. It says, uh, first of all, that, that he uses the sense of hearing, the crack of whips, the clatter of heels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, all descriptions of noises and ones that would be familiar to those that had suffered under the Assyrians. And in verse 3, he uses the sense of sight, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies that they couldn't even number, stumbling over corpses. The number of dead was just unbelievable. It was, it was enormous. And royal inscriptions would recount with joy the number of enemies slain and victims carried away into captivity. They were a murderous and brutal empire. They loved the, the brutality and the murder that went alongside their victories. So they were accused of murder. Then there's lies and robbery. Look at verse, verse 1 again. Full of lies, full of plunder or stolen goods. That's what plunder means here. And these things characterized the life of the city. And in addition, they were used against other nations. Assyria was deceptive. You may remember um, a few weeks ago when we read 2 Kings chapter 18, when the king of Assyria, King Sennacherib, planned to invade Jerusalem, and he used lies about King Hezekiah to turn people against him. They were full of lies. And when a city was conquered, it was plundered. If you remember, we said last week, I think, that the, the Babylonian Chronicle says that the great quantities of spoil that were taken away were beyond counting. They were full of lies. They were full of plunder. 
They were then accused of harlotry. Look at verse 4. All because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring the mysteries of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. Nations were sold into prostitution. This is both figurative and literal. The Syrians are being described as a harlot in that other nations played up to her and courted her because of her power. It's also uh, used often in the Bible to describe idolatry. Assyria, or Nineveh specifically, was a city that had turned to God in Jonah and now worshipping idols. But it's literal too in that nations were sold into prostitution and immorality as they were forced to be like the Assyrian Empire. And they were accused too of paganism, idol worship or occult. Witchcraft is mentioned twice, once using the word sorceries and also the word witchcraft. And it's a reference to the occult. Archaeologists have confirmed that the Ninevites practiced witchcraft. And the pantheon of hideous and destructive deities was similar to what you would find today in a Hindu temple. And most of these were imagined to hate and persecute human beings. Pretty awful, isn't it? You would think that, well, they deserve everything they got. And you'll see that through the Ten Commandments, everyone was broken, through these, even in these verses. No other gods before me, not making carved images. Well, they, they worshipped and followed after idols. <coughs> Not taking the name of God in vain. Well, in 2 Kings 18, we saw King Sennacherib doing just that, speaking ill of God, accusing, uh, the, uh, saying to the uh, Israelites that they shouldn't believe in him. We would know they didn't keep the Sabbath. We can't read anything about honoring their father and mother, but we can't imagine they would have done so. But certainly we see murder, adultery, stealing, lies, covetousness, always wanting more land off of other people. (coughs) But if you look at the sins of Nineveh, you could easily apply them, can't you, to our own country today. We're not much better. When you look at murder, it was in the news the other week that, you know, with uh, babies being aborted for, for, for their gender, that was in the news just recently, for their gender, because someone doesn't want a boy or a girl This baby is aborted. Or lies and robbery, where we see that, don't we? We have governments that aren't trusted. We see stealing all the time. Paganism and occult worship, where we see atheism uh, and false religion all around us, don't we? And immorality, you just have to turn on the TV, look at magazines and newspapers, and it's all there, isn't it? We are no better as a nation than really Assyria were. We might think, well, it's not, a, not, you know, we don't murder babies. No, but we disobey God just like they did. But even as people of God, we can still struggle with some of these things. You think, well, murder? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, didn't he, that if we're angry in our hearts, it's like uh, the same thing. Lies and robbery. Well, sometimes we tell lies even now, don't we? We may not steal physically, but we can steal time from our employers when we don't work, as perhaps we should. We can steal honour off of somebody else when perhaps it's due to them. And although we may not uh, bow down and worship statues, uh, we do get sucked into worshipping worthless things, don't we? 
whether it be our homes, our careers, our bank balances, or those kind of things. And we can get drawn into immorality as well, can't we? Even those secret things, like that program on the TV, or that picture on the internet. We are no better, really, than anybody else, but for the grace of God. And we need to confess these things to God. We need to pray uh, over these things. We were encouraged, I think, uh, quite a few weeks ago by, I think, Tim Ambrose encouraged us to pray through the Ten Commandments. And we should do so, confessing those ways that we fall short to God. And although uh, we know as believers that Jesus has been punished for us, we don't, uh, we don't sow judgment in the same way in an eternal sense, we certainly do reap the consequences of our actions, which can be destructive for our ministries, for our families, and for our churches. We need to watch our lives, watch the way we live, because although we will not be judged for eternity for it as believers, we are not immune from reaping the consequences of our actions as well. <clears throat> that verse in Galatians chapter 6 is true for us as well. God is not mocked. A man does reap what he sows, and a woman as well. Well, we see two things that the uh, Syrians reaped. First of all, we see the reaping of shame in verses 5 to 11. <clears throat> and verse 5 begins with this frightening phrase, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. And God is against all those who do not submit to him. Notice the contrast to chapter 1 and verse 7, where for the believer, he is for us. He is for those who trust in him. But to the Assyrians, he said, I am against you. And it was a declaration from God himself. And Nahum uses a metaphor here in verse 5 to describe shame. He says, I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness. Skirts lifted over faces implies embarrassment. The people at the time would have worn skirts, a little bit like uh, Scottish people do, although they wouldn't call them skirts, they called them kilts. But if you have a skirt and it's lifted over your face, of course it's embarrassing. If you are a woman and you're walking down the road and the wind blows and your skirt goes up, it's an embarrassing moment, isn't it? But this is so much more worse than that. This is not just embarrassment, this is shame. Because in these times, if a woman was convicted of unchastity, she was exposed to public gaze, nakedness. This is what it means in, in the Christmas story when Joseph didn't want to make Mary a public example. If someone was accused of adultery, they were forced to be shamed in front of everybody. It was public shame and disgrace to be stripped naked and exposed. And in the Bible, nakedness is shameful, isn't it? Except in the Garden of Eden when there was no sin, where there was innocence. But when sin came into the world, Adam hid because he was naked and was afraid because he knew that he had sinned. And in verses 6 and 7, we see that there will be shame when people look at Nineveh. <clears throat> I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone 
to comfort you. A spectacle is not something pretty, but pelted with filth, like a man in the stocks in medieval times, where people would throw rotten food. No one will care or desire to help. All who see will run away and cry that she is in ruins, and no one will mourn for her. No one will comfort. They are utterly disgraced, utterly shamed. And because of this shame, people will turn their backs and turn away and not bring comfort. Whenever we watch a film at home and someone gets their comeuppance, Paula always uh, seems to feel sorry for the character. You know, always. I don't know why. But this won't be the case for Nineveh. No one will feel sorry for them. I remember when I was a teenager and uh, I was caught smoking by my mum. And I was a bit stupid because I was smoking in the street. Uh, we came, when you came out of a street, you came onto a main road. And I was on the main road thinking that I wouldn't get caught. And my mum came around the corner in the car and she saw me. And I saw her and I turned to run and she wound the window down. And I heard the window come down so I just thought there's no point in running away. And I turned to her. And all that she said to me, rather than shout, was, I'm really disappointed in you. And she ran the window up and then drove off. Well, I was ashamed. I wasn't ashamed because of my friends had saw my mum catch me in the act. I was ashamed because my mum had seen me in my sin. She'd exposed me and I disappointed her, which I hate to do. I wanted to hide, but I knew that I had to go home. And go home I did. And I had to face her then. And she was disappointed with me when I got home too. And isn't this how we are before God sometimes? When we're confronted with our sin, we are ashamed, aren't we? When God shines his holy light upon us, we just want to hide like Adam in the garden. But you know, it's right that we are ashamed of our sin if we are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus took our shame for us, didn't he? If you look at the verses in Nahum that we read, we can see what Jesus did for us. Nineveh, it says, was pelted with filth, treated with contempt, made a spectacle. Isn't that exactly what happened to our Saviour at Calvary? People looked at him Rather than crying, he is in ruins, they said, come down from there, didn't they? You can save yourself, they said to him. They mocked him. No one comforted him. Even his father turned his back on him. There was shame. He was exiled. He was emptied of strength. He had no place to hide. And he was shamed publicly to give us his righteousness so that we have nothing to be ashamed of. Because when now, as believers, we stand in the presence of God, we can stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We don't stand there as sinners. We stand there as saved people clothed in his righteousness. And if we're forgiven of our sin when we ask God, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Perhaps you struggle with this as a Christian. There are many that I know that do. They struggle with feelings of shame and guilt over what they've done in the past. 
But the Bible tells us that there's no need to feel ashamed because Jesus has taken that for us. He has been shamed in our behalf. And we can stand in God's presence, not crippled by sin, not crippled by guilt, but in the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that good news that we can have that through Christ? Perhaps some of you um, are still struggling with this. We're still struggling with guilt and shame. Well, there's opportunity. You know, do come and speak to us about these things. And we'd love to share with you more what Christ has done and pray with you. And talk to you how you don't need to be ashamed with Christ. But the Ninevites, they reaped shame because of their sin. Because they didn't repent. But also we see the reaping of destruction in verses uh, 12, uh, verses uh, 8 sorry, to 19. Nahum moves from metaphor in verses 5 to 7 to a real life example in verses 8 to 10. And the example is of a place called Thebes, which Lydia was telling me uh, that they're studying at school at the moment. So I told her she could go and share some of this sermon with her friends. Thebes was conquered by Assyria in 663 BC, about 15 years before this prophecy. So it was uh, in their memories, something that they were proud of and remembered. And it was uh, similar to Nineveh in many ways. Thebes was an ancient city. Thebes was strong. And it was the biggest city of the Assyrian Empire for a time. And Thebes was the capital of Egypt, like Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And it was also, like Nineveh, protected by water. But there was a big difference. You see, Thebes, it says here, had allies, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Libya were her allies. Nineveh, it says, have no such allies. So what chance did they have? Look at verse 10. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. Lots were cast for her nobles and her great men were put in chains. Despite the strength of verses 8 to 9, she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were uh, killed. Her nobles were just given away, taken away. The great men put in chains. This was something that the Assyrians would remember. It was only 15 years ago. It was a great battle that they celebrate. But in verse 11, he turns it, God turns it to Nineveh. You too will become drunk. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. Now you too will become drunk is a reference to when the Babylonians attacked And the Assyrians were drunk on the supply of wine that the king used to liberally give to his soldiers. And they will hide as they seek refuge from the enemy. And Matthew Henry writes this about the fall of Thebes and how it applies to Nineveh and to us. Matthew Henry says, It will help to keep us in holy fear of the judgment of God to consider that we are not better than those who have fallen under those judgments before us. It will help us to be in fear of God if we remember we are no better than those who have fallen before us. And if you look at verse 12, we see that this destruction will be easy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. If you go to a fig tree and the fruit's ripe, 
You don't have to work hard to drag it off the, the branch. You just give it a shake and it falls off. It's easy. That's how the destruction will be. They thought their fortress was impenetrable, but it was easy, like shaking a fig tree. And in verses 13 to 15, Nahum's taunting Nineveh more. He says, look at your troops. In the original language, in some versions, it says, they are like women. Well, it was an insult uh, to describe weakness. I'm not going to say anything about women's weakness or anything. I've, in fact, I'm, having watched Paula give birth, I would not agree. But women, it, said, it was used in these days as a sign of weakness. You're weak, he says. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed their bars. And then he goes on, draw water for the siege. Strengthen your defenses. Work the clay. That means make bricks and build, build, build higher. Tread the mortar. Repair the brickwork. There the fire will devour you, the sword will cut you down, and like grasshoppers consume you. Multiply like grasshoppers, multiply like locusts. You know, the troops and the fortresses, the people, the gates, the waters, the bricks, they made Nineveh almost impenetrable. But Nahum says that their fortresses are like fig trees, their people are weaklings, their gates will be burnt, waters and bricks will be useless against the attack and they'll be destroyed by fire and sword like the locusts that swarm in take what they want and leave and destroy and archaeology uh, confirms that Nineveh was destroyed (coughs) by fire and Nineveh is taunted at the end of verse 15 to multiply like the grasshoppers and the locusts it doesn't matter how many of you there are you are still going to be destroyed. You can build your armies up against the Lord, but God is still going to have the victory. And Nahum moves on from the place of Nineveh being destroyed to the people. Look at verses 16 and 17. You have increased the the number of merchants, so they are more than the stars of the sky. But like the locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. You are, your guards are like locusts. Your officials like swarms of locusts that settle in the walls on a cold day, but when the sun appears, they fly away, and no one knows where. O king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountain with no one to gather them. The merchants, well, they were the rich, and there was loads of them. Like the stars in the sky. It's a bit like the square mile in the city of London. Rich people everywhere. The city was rich because of the plunder. But what happens? Well, like locusts, they fly away. The riches, rather than help the situation, just give the enemy more reason to come. And it appears that, from reading, that these merchants, which they were so proud of, disappear with their riches when they see the Babylonians come in. So they see the army come in, they pack their bags of all their gold and they run away. Well, as well as having loads of merchants, there were loads of guards and officials. These are military terms in the Hebrew, commanders and generals. But what do these great commanders and generals do when the Babylonians come? Well, like locusts uh, become uh, torpid in cold weather... So the commanders and generals of Nineveh are paralysed and useless when the attack comes. So like a locust, when it's cold, is, is just paralysed, doesn't do anything, 
So are the army. So are these great commanders and generals which had defeated places like Thebes. When the Babylonians come, they, they're weak and they run away because they're scared. And in verse 18, the shepherds, the protectors of the people, rather than literal shepherds, these protectors don't protect. They, they, they disappear and the people are scattered. The nobles, the best of men, well, they're, they're nowhere to be seen. They lie down as well and they scatter on the mountains like sheep. No one will gather them in because the shepherds are asleep. And so we see the rich merchants, we see the mighty soldiers, we see the protectors of the people running away when the trouble comes. And they're always like this. We rely, don't we, on uh, riches. We rely on other people. We rely on our position and our power. And we believe that these things will keep us secure when trouble comes, don't we? But when trouble comes, these things don't really help us and it's as if they just run away. When we substitute God for any of these things, for anything else, we only ever end up in more trouble. God must have the first place in our lives. As uh, Jesus told in the story of the, uh, the, the rock and the sand, and as the song says, all other ground is sinking sand. And people, even worse, trust these things for their salvation, don't they? They trust that, well, they've got enough riches, they're comfortable, they've got power, they've, they've, you know, they live a good life, they're like a noble man or noble woman. But when we face God, all these things will just disappear. They will not help in one way whatsoever. Only Jesus can save us. And all these things that the Ninevites were proud of were destroyed. And so too the things that we are so proud of will be destroyed too. And as a warning for us that if we're really proud of uh, how much money we have in our banks or how uh, nice our house is or if we're proud of um, the reputation we have or the position that we have in work or society or whatever, if we're more proud of those things than God, then beware because God may have to destroy those things in order for you to put him at the centre of your life so that we can depend wholly on him. And as we come to the end in verse 19, we see that this destruction will be total. Nothing can heal you. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Justice deserved, isn't it? All those that Nineveh have persecuted will be glad when Nineveh falls. They clap their hands in celebration. And there's nothing Nineveh can do. Nothing can heal that wound. Their injury is fatal. But notice a contrast, if you look at the New Testament, between this and what Jesus offers. Because we too, in sin, have a wound that nothing can heal. In sin, we have an injury that is fatal. But look, um, I'm going to just read a few verses from Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells the parable of a woman who has lost a coin. Or suppose, Jesus said, a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? 
And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, when we repent, when we give our lives over to God, we are healed of that fatal wound, which is sin. And the angels, with the God who we have persecuted, rejoice in celebration over one sinner who repents. Notice the contrast here. For Nineveh, their wound can't be healed. It's like they're completely lost. And everyone rejoices at their fall. But if we put our trust in Jesus, we are not lost in this sin, in this injury. We are healed and there is rejoicing. The clapping is not for our fall. In heaven, it's for our repentance. We can be healed of that fatal wound of sin if we put our trust and give our lives to Jesus Christ. And in order for us to receive that gift of eternal life, Jesus had to take our place on the cross. We reap what we sow, but we must receive forgiveness provided by God in Christ to reap eternal life. We began uh, this evening by singing how we are to be amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And we end in a similar way by reminding ourselves once more that we are just like these Ninevites, and yet God loved us so much that he gave Jesus to save us. So we'll close with our final hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, How Vast Beyond All Measure That He Would Give His Only Son to Make a Wretch His Treasure. Let's stand together and sing.